This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the governor has emerged from his post-election cocoon. The last time Ron DeSantis spoke with reporters was the day after the election, when he bragged about the smooth vote count in Florida and promised he'd have more to say in a couple of days. Um, I'll be back uh, to, to, to take questions probably sometime before the weekends. Thank you, guys. But instead of waiting till the end of the week, we basically had to wait until the end of the month. The governor finally emerged Monday to announce the state would allow students to continue with virtual learning next semester. And while the number of COVID cases is rising in Florida, DeSantis says the schools will remain open. People who advocate closing schools for virus mitigation uh, are effectively today's flat earthers. They have no scientific or evidence support uh, for their position. Florida is about to reach a grim milestone in the COVID-19 pandemic. When the casualty figures are released today, Florida will top more than one million cases. Only Texas and California have more. If you're listening to this podcast, it means you've also survived another hurricane season in the Sunshine State. 2020 was the most active season since we started keeping records, and Florida avoided the worst of it, except for the panhandle. An education reform group created by former Governor Jeb Bush is holding a three-day virtual event. Patricia Levesque with the Foundation for Excellence in Education says it's for everyone who believes now is the time to retool our schools and wants to get it right. Education as we knew it before March hasn't returned to normal. And according to a lot of parents, they don't necessarily want it to return to just the way that it was before. They want things to be better. It's called Edpalooza 2020, and it starts today. Former President George Bush and his younger brother Jeb are both taking part. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events, plus the stories of a Florida man about to be released after more than 30 years in jail for a nonviolent pot offense, and the Florida woman who was shot at her son's funeral. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Tuesday, December 1st. The birth of the modern American civil rights movement occurred on this date back in 1955 when Rosa Parks was arrested in Montgomery, Alabama for refusing to give up her seat and move to the back of the bus. This is also National Christmas Lights Day, which sounds like a holiday created by the power company. And in truth, it was. Electric Christmas lights were first invented in 1880 by Thomas Edison, but people didn't trust electricity then. It took several decades for the invention to catch on. It wasn't until 1903 when General Electric began selling pre-assembled kits of Christmas lights that electric tree lights became popular. By the time you hear this, there's a very good chance that Florida will have passed the 1 million mark in coronavirus cases. On Monday, the health department reported 6,659 newly confirmed cases, increasing the statewide total to 999,319. They also confirmed 98 more fatalities. Florida's death toll has reached 18,834. Despite the rise in cases and fears of another surge after the Thanksgiving holiday, Governor Ron DeSantis says there will be no lockdowns, no fines, and no school closures in Florida, and he's still refusing to issue any sort of a mask mandate. How has that worked out in the states that have done it? Has that stopped an outbreak in Minnesota, Illinois, Michigan? What about New Jersey? What about all these states where you have explosion in cases? So, I mean, at some point, does the observed experience matter? I'm opposed to mandates, period. I don't think they work. People in Florida wear them when you go out. I mean, they don't have to be uh, strung up by a bayonet to do it. Fining people is, I think, totally overboard. No lockdowns, uh, no fines, no school closures. No one's losing their job because of a government dictate. 
Nobody's losing their livelihood or their business. That is totally off the table. He's no fan of remote learning, but the governor has decided he will not force virtual kids back to the classroom next semester. DeSantis says parents will still have a choice. As we see schools, uh, unfortunately, remain closed in key pockets of our country, uh, today's announcement doubles down on Florida's commitment to our students and to our parents. And the announcement is this. Schools will remain open for in-person instruction, and we will continue to offer parents choices for the spring semester. And every parent in Florida can take that to the bank. DeSantis took a lot of heat when he ordered Florida schools to reopen back in August. There were fears they would become super spreaders. But the governor says schools have turned out to be a safe place for kids, and he believes the closings did more harm than good. Closing schools due to coronavirus uh, is probably the biggest public health blunder in, in modern American history. Um, the fallout in communities that are still chafing under school closures, we have some of the biggest school districts in our country uh, that still do not have in-person instruction. Incidentally, of the top 10 school districts population-wise, five are in Florida, all five offer in-person instruction. Um, uh, but but the, the harm from this is going to reverberate in those communities for years and years to come. And the tragedy of all this is that the evidence has been remarkably clear since the spring uh, that closing schools offers virtually nothing in terms of virus mitigation, but imposes huge costs on our kids, on our parents, and on our society. Now, we looked over, over the summer uh, as we were making the push, working with um, uh, both Commissioner Corcoran as well as a lot of our superintendents. Uh, the experience, if you looked at the actual data and got away from the politics, was abundantly clear. Places like Sweden, Germany, Denmark, Switzerland, uh, all had positive experiences by keeping uh, kids in school. There was actually a study out of Iceland that got virtually no uh, coverage here in the United States that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. They did genetic sequencing of their positive uh, PCR test samples and were able to determine which directions the infections were going. They identified zero infections going from a kid to an adult. And that was one of the reasons why they thought it was important to have kids in school. The Prime Minister of Norway said that closing schools in the, in the spring was a mistake and that it may have actually increased viral spread in their community. And I think that since August, as states like Florida uh, reopened schools for in-person instruction, I think the U.S. experience has tracked with the European results. And I think tellingly, even as Europe has recently experienced a very, very sharp uh, outbreak in countries like France, uh, in Switzerland, and Belgium, uh, closing schools was simply off the table as a viable response. Some, like France, chose to shut down businesses. Others, like Switzerland, didn't do that. No one was talking about uh, closing schools. And I think that that uh, is reflective of what the, the, the evidence has shown us. Uh, so as we stand here today, uh, people who advocate closing schools for virus mitigation uh, are effectively today's flat earthers. They have no scientific or evidence support uh, for their position. The governor made this announcement at Boggy Creek Elementary School in Kissimmee, where Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran joined him in defending their decision to reopen schools back in August. Corcoran believes virtual learning is no substitute for face-to-face -face instruction in the classroom.
Education is distinctly that thing that makes us human beings. Um, and it is that thing that gives us dignity. Um, and that's such a powerful concept and word. And if you're going to take that and rob that from our school children, um, that threshold has to be really, really high. And it has to be 100% certain. And we had none of that going back into the throes of the summer. And when the governor announced we're going to have face-to-face -face instruction, we're going to open schools, and there's just this litany of outcry um, un scientific, non-fact driven, uh, not even taking the time to read the research that was out there, the studies that the governor has quoted, whether it's Iceland or other ones. And now we move forward 100 days, and now the studies are coming out. Everyone's like, okay, um, yep, you know, even these national, you know, epidemiological experts are, you know, back 120 days ago, it's too soon to open schools, it'll cause community spread, and now they're saying open the schools, close everything else. Um, and how can you be respected in a sense when you're making opinions that are 180 degrees different from what you said just a, you know days earlier? And so to be able to push through that and push through the, the, the rhetoric of, of we were leading kids into you know, some sort of death march, and when the reality is the opposite was true. The governor's announcement is welcome news for the folks who run your local schools. They were concerned the state would reduce funding for students who learn remotely instead of actually attending school. The COVID crisis has upended our education system, which might make this the perfect time to figure out what we can do to improve it. Next up on the Sunrise Interview, Patricia Levesque with the Foundation for Excellence in Education invites you to a three-day festival of reform called Edpalooza. But first, a word from the sponsor. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. As the number of COVID-19 cases are increasing, the potential collision of COVID-19 and the flu virus could lead to a new word Floridians do not want to use, twindemic. That is why Florida Blue, the Florida Hospital Association, and the Florida Medical Association have joined forces to encourage Floridians to get their flu vaccine today. Visit floridablue.com, fha.org, or flmedical.org to learn more and support a flu-free Florida. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is Patricia Levesque, the Chief Executive Officer of the Foundation for Excellence in Education. It was created by Jeb Bush to advance the school reforms approved while he was governor and advocate for alternatives to traditional public schools. That includes school choice, private school vouchers, and charter schools. Levesque says the foundation is hosting a three-day virtual conference. They're calling it Edpalooza. Edpalooza is a gathering, a virtual event this year with um, policymakers. And policymakers, from our definition, are elected or appointed individuals, primarily at the state level, along with staff. So Department of Education staff, school district uh, level staff as well. And it's a gathering, a nonpartisan gathering uh, on a virtual platform to talk about education. The agenda is is really pretty broad. It's uh, all about how do we make the education system better for students. And so that means how do we ensure that all kids have um, access and equitable access to high quality public education. Now, whether that is through traditional public schools, through um, public charter schools, through uh, virtual programs through the new kind of the new micro schools or pods that are that parents are 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 forming um, through all kinds of options. We want the entire system to work for kids. 
You also have a who's who of panelists and speakers that are part of this, including the Brothers Bush. Well, we're really excited um, to have in this convening President George W. Bush, uh, who will be presenting as well as U.S. Education Secretary, former U.S. Education Secretary under President Obama, John King. Uh, We'd love to have bipartisan panels of individuals who all believe that we need to do better by our kids. We need to have strong education systems. Um, We need to have equitable access for kids to have high-quality teachers and high-quality schools. Um, they're, They're participating as well as Dr. Condoleezza Rice and John Meacham, who are going to talk about our democracy and the importance of um, an educated uh, students on civic education. Um, we've got Governor Bush, Jeb Bush, who's also going to be talking with some panelists on the importance of broadband, um, not only in education, but certainly as it applies to education. We really need to ensure that adults, teachers, and students have access to devices and broadband so they can have high-quality education And then we've got some great uh, speakers like Andrea Schleicher, who works for the OECD and administers the PISA, the International PISA Test. Um, Irshad Manji, who's written um, a book called Don't Label Me and has started the Moral Courage Project, as well as Amanda Ripley, who has written this book called Unthinkable, Who Survives in a Disaster and Why? So we've got a great lineup of speakers. We have more than 100 policy sessions. Um, We're actually partnering this year with about 50 other organizations to really um, talk at a deep level about all things impacting our kids in education. I guess I'm wondering, in the age of COVID, where everything we know about education has been disrupted, is this, you know, a weird time to be doing this sort of look ahead, or is this actually the perfect time because everything is sort of in chaos and in flux right now? Right. Well, we certainly think it's it's the perfect time to have these conversations. States are still struggling, right? School districts and, and families are still struggling. Education as we knew it before March, you know, hasn't hasn't returned to normal. And according to a lot of parents, they don't necessarily want it to return to just the way that it was before. They want things to be better. And so what a great opportunity to convene policymakers and elected officials and researchers and education advocates from all across the country to talk about what they're doing in their state, what are the things that they're able to put in place that are making the system better. You know, we think it's a great thing to share ideas and for states to learn from each other so they can make the system better. Is there anything in particular that states are doing that have worked that you've seen nationwide? Well, clearly, you know, some states have been faster to um, make sure that the digital divide, right, this divide between um, where you don't have some, where some students don't have access to devices and broadband or internet connectivity, when, uh, you know, back in March, all, all 50 states shut down in-person schooling, right? So there have been several states that have made it a priority to make sure devices and connectivity have been provided with um, funds that were available, made available through the Federal uh, CARES Act. But I think a lot more that have been paying attention to where do we go from here, right? This, you know, how do we make sure teachers are trained in knowing how to teach in an online environment? How do we make sure students with special needs are getting the therapy and the intervention that they need, even if it is through 
a, a remote or an online environment. Several states have been thinking about how do we return in a way that is different, right? A lot of things that have been happening in some schools, I'll give you an example. There's a, a really high-performing charter school system in New York called Success Academy, and when they went into shutdown, they really thought differently about um, since all their students were online, why not have their best seventh grade teacher that knows how to teach algebra be the one providing the instruction to all of their dozens of schools? And then all the other seventh grade teachers who would have normally taught algebra become more of those, you know, deeper intervention helping the kids that are still struggling they really created a different education model through this online disruption or this, this disruption that caused everyone to, to go online. And so there are, there are stories and there are lessons from different school districts across the country that can be applied so that we think differently, right, when we do start returning um, in other places more in person. Ed Palooza begins today, continues through Thursday. More than 100 different sessions will be offered over the three-day virtual events. The 2020 Atlantic hurricane season ended last night. It goes down in history as the most active one on record. There were 30 named storms. So many, they ran out of names on the official list and started using Greek letters to name them. Florida got lucky for the most part. Only four of those storms even affected the state, and only one of them actually made landfall here. Now, the most damage was done by Sally, which brought massive storm surge and flooding to Pensacola in northwest Florida. The storm claimed three lives in the panhandle and resulted in as much as $100 million worth of agricultural losses. Later this week, we'll be talking to the head of the State Emergency Management Office to find out what, if anything, we learned from the 2020 season. A proposal that would allow people with concealed weapons permits to carry guns on Florida college and university campuses has been filed for the 2021 legislative session. The sponsor is Republican Representative Anthony Sabatini. The campus carry bill has been filed many times over the years, but has faced opposition from university officials. Now, on the opposite end of the gun spectrum, Democratic Representative Dan Daly has filed Jamie's Law for the upcoming session. It would require a background check to purchase bullets. Under Florida law, anyone who is prohibited from possessing a firearm is also prohibited prohibited from purchasing ammunition, but retailers are not required to run a background check for ammo, and Daly wants to close that loophole. The bill is named in honor of 14-year-old Jamie Gutenberg, one of the victims of the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Your calendar of events? Well, today is the deadline for students who graduated from high school during the 2019-2020 academic year to meet the SAT or ACT test score requirements to qualify for a Bright Futures scholarship. The extension was announced in September after the academic year was interrupted by the pandemic. The Elections Commission meets at 8.30. At 9, the Revenue Estimating Conference will analyze issues related to slot machines and Indian gaming. The Public Service Commission meets at 9.30 to take up a series of issues, including an FP&L proposal that would lead to more vehicle charging stations. Trustees at Florida Southwestern State College meet at 3 in Punta Gorda, and the Florida Department of Transportation holds a public hearing at 5.30 in Bartow on the design of a stretch of the Central Polk Parkway. A Florida woman was shot by an unknown gunman at a burial service for her son, who was shot by a deputy last month in Brevard County. The pastor had just finished prayers and mourners were placing flowers on the casket of 18-year-old Sincere Pierce when the gunman fired, hitting his mom. And finally today, a Florida man who has spent 31 years in prison for a marijuana crime could be freed by the end of the week. Richard DeLisi has been locked up since 1989. He's America's longest-serving nonviolent cannabis prisoner. 
He was sentenced to 90 years after being convicted of racketeering, trafficking, and conspiracy after agreeing to help smuggle more than 100 pounds of Colombian pot into Florida. DeLisi is now 71 years old and could be released from South Bay Correctional Facility as early as December 4th. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics. Thank you.